Welcome to Ground Up, a podcast about propelling entrepreneurship in Uganda. Brought to you by UEEI, the Uganda Entrepreneurial Ecosystem Initiative. I'm your host, Hamna Makanjo. And I'm your host, Faye Kakai. Tune in every Monday for engaging one-on-one discussions. We'll be talking to a variety of entrepreneurs, support organizations, as well as hosting solution panels tackling specific topics on the ecosystem in Uganda. Welcome to Ground Up. Today we're talking to an entrepreneur. We have the founder and CEO of Raintree Farms with us in the studio, Teddy Rook. He'll introduce himself shortly. As a reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, do subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Welcome, Teddy. Welcome to Ground Up. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Awesome. So, Teddy, you're a man of many hats. Um, We know that you're on the board of Hive Collab, which is a tech incubator. We had Barbara Mutabazi on, on the on the show recently, so shout out to her. You're also a communications consultant for the World Bank, and you're the founder CEO at Raintree Farms. So we'll delve into all of that uh, shortly and into the work that you do. But before we start, could you tell us about yourself? Who is Teddy Rug, and what are you passionate about? What drives you as an individual? Let's see where we started. Yeah, so I'm the co-founder actually of Hive Collab, and um, we were the first uh, tech hub in in Uganda. And then um, Raintree Farms came about. Um, we kind of I started kicking the tires on that idea around 2012. Um, bought the land actually in 2011, 2012. We planted 2014. Um, we started manufacturing and producing. Yeah, and you know, we've, we've, you know, it's agriculture. It takes forever yeah. to actually establish it as a serious business. So, um, I've been struggling behind the scenes there um, in Masindi, um, getting that off the ground, and um, you know, fairly doing well. Um, we had to struggle to kind of get through COVID, mm. um, but we we're here. We're still here. Um, not not yet fully like flying, you know, independent, but we're there. We're there. Yeah. Awesome. So, so could you tell us about Raintree Farms? Um, what is it that, that you do and um, what would you say is most unique about the company? Yeah. So Raintree Farms is a social enterprise uh, focused on, um, you know, delivering impact. I'm mainly focused on value-added processing of Moringa, um, Olefera. Many people here in Uganda will remember that um, Moringa was introduced or, or, or popularized by the government. Um, because it has, you know, massive market internationally. Um, but it, it kind of failed to take off because we didn't do what really needed to be done to establish um, that industry in the country. It would have done really, really well. So when we came in, it was after the hype had died down and everybody decided that, um, you know, there was no market for Moringa, when in fact the real truth was that there was market. It's just... Nobody was going to buy our, you know, very terribly produced, unqualified, you know, product uh, from farmers. What needed to be done was uh, companies needed to be established and protocols for quality production at international standard needed to be engaged. Uh, co-ops should have been established for all of the farmers that were engaging in the, in the crop um, so that those companies could purchase from those farmers, um, and then value addition, organic certification needed to be done by the by those companies, and then UNBS needed to set up testing labs to be able to in, ensure that the quality was was at international standards. 
and be able to export that. But none of that was done. So all of the farmers were left on their own. And there's no buyer that's going to come in and buy from a single farmer. It's just impossible to for one single farmer who's never done international export um, to meet the standards. So we needed a way to aggregate the supply chain um, and be the company that um, can stand in and take care of those, you know, international level things that farmers, you know, don't have experience doing. So. We established officially registered in 2015. We got organic certification in 2017, um, started exporting in 2018. We have kind of like a unique supply chain in the way we deal with um, and engage farmers um, that supply us. Um, we developed a program called Secure Income Program that allows us to pay the farmers on a monthly basis as opposed to just simply paying them uh, whenever harvest happened. Um, because one thing we realized were farmers needed operating capital mm. to be able to um, to tend to their gardens, to hire people yeah. to tend to their gardens, etc. And um, it's difficult to do that when you're only getting paid every three months. Mm. But then the product requires hands-on treatment in order for you to actually get really good quality out of it. So mm. we came up with a program to um, estimate exactly how much they can produce in one um, in one year and then divided that into 12 monthly payments to allow them uh, capital, mm. essentially. Yeah, um, that's regular. And yeah, yeah, that's regular, predictable, and that's why we call it Secure Income Program mm. because as long as they did their job, we and you know our job was simply to pay them um, yeah. to actually get this done. And the program has been very successful. Um, it's able to help farmers increase their monthly income by uh, at least five or six times. And then through that, we realized that we also needed to do value-added processing with direct-to-consumer products. Um, so we created a, um, one of the things that we have done, we created a brand called Quasi Beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is on the market currently, and we're continuing to innovate with different products, high-quality products, mm-hmm. uh, beauty products from, developed from Moringa, uh, Moringa, both Moringa oil and Moringa powder. Um, so, uh, yeah. So now yeah. We, we we're on the way to establishing that as a you know as a major as a major player both in the commodities export but also um, on the retail side. Yeah, that's really awesome, and and I'm curious because um, I know that you're a tech enthusiast with with Hive Collab and all that, and your your training is in communications and design. What led you to farming and and specifically like agricultural? value addition could you walk us through that journey yeah i i i I don't um my training is communication design um and advertising what's weird is that the skills i learned getting that degree are transferable across um different areas Mm -hmm. Um, like for example for rain tree farms and the value added processing i can focus on the communications i can do that well in telling our story very well um, but also in the products that we actually also develop. I understand um, keenly that in order to change the perception of Africa, we also have to change what we create and what we put out into the world. Mm-hmm. So quality matters. Yeah. So you know, by paying attention to the quality of product that we actually put out, we can do the changing of mindsets of what's possible within Africa and what's possible within Uganda. Mm-hmm. So I can use my design skills to actually do that and affect impact just through 
um, the process of design, communications, and storytelling. Essentially, we can tell a different story, not so much about poverty, etc., and those kinds of things, mm-hmm. but to say, to, you know, look, if we organize, we can actually do world-class uh, stuff. So I've used my skills to design products that can stand on any shelf in the world, not mm-hmm. just simply um, something that, yeah, we... You sell oil, where, do you, where can I find it? Yeah, Chikuvo. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we want a product that's literally indistinguishable from, you know, those you will find in Paris. So, you know, people fly to Dubai to buy products, etc. Yes. I want you to go to Dubai and find our product and then you bring it home, you show it to your <laughs> friends, only for them to tell you, hey, this, made is, in this, Uganda. this is made in Uganda. Yeah. So we want to change the narrative that way, um, essentially. And technology, um, as economies are developing, um, at Hive Collab, we have a belief that technology touches all parts of the economy. Um, there, we focus on five thematic areas we think are critically important to the digital economy in the country. Um, we have education technology that we focus on as a vertical, uh, governance and policy. Um, we focus on that. This fintech, which is essentially drives all e-commerce um, that we have. This agritech, which I'm in. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, MedTech also um, that is also delivering. The, you know, there's major companies now that are um, that have that have come up uh, in the country and are expanding because of uh, technology as applied to medical services, etc. Yeah. You can just look at Rocket Health, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, they're riding that technology. So we like to focus on those thematic areas because we think they're fairly critical. So any players who are developing apps or technologies or platforms in those areas, um, those are the ones we focus on in terms of accelerating. So it's all kind of interconnected mm-hmm. if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And um, so the work that you do is, also, it's, I mean, farming and, and, and agri-tech, it's very intertwined with the environment. Mm-hmm. And also, as we mentioned earlier, you consult on climate and development projects for the World Bank. What is your approach to environmental sustainability at rain tree farms and how is this interlinked for you with circularity and social responsibility? Yeah, um, so with, with climate communications, I think a, a lot of the lessons that I learned um, in working at several uh, initiatives at the World Bank, um, I was part of the, um, the launching of Connect for Climate, um, which dealt with um, um, engaging youth um, to be more sensitized about climate change and the effects, and to be more activists um, mm-hmm. in the sense. And then I've been I've worked uh, briefly on the Great Green Wall project um, that is you know plan, trying to stop the Sahara from stre- um, from spreading south mm-hmm. um, by planting more trees and um, you know providing economic activities that are um, that are pro um, environment. Um, to help stop the spread of uh, desertification, etc. So that I picked up a lot of skills in, in terms of that, communicating that. So when it comes to rain tree farms, a lot of those activities are, are what I infuse in our business plan and our supply chain. Well, yeah. For example, um, we don't simply tell farmers, hey, go and plant moringa. We have methodologies that we help them in, you know, in terms of doing that. We're moving more from monocropping to uh, food forest ideals, essentially. So what that looks like is, um, um, yeah, you can plant moringa um, leaf uh, for us 
and we can come and harvest it every you know every six to eight weeks. But we also want you to plant trees. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever new farmers come to us, one of the first things that we tell them is like you know let us know how many trees you have on your plantation, mm-hmm. um, and then we don't want you to cut a single one of them down. Mm-hmm. We want you to add more trees. So, but we do it in a way that where we're looking at our future, our economic viability through those activities. Like, for example, you're not just going to plant moringa. Mm-hmm. We also want you to plant coffee. We also want you to plant uh, maybe avocado. We want you to plant mango because each of those can be product verticals that we can actually get into. Mm-hmm. They are um, climate positive because you're adding uh, to forest cover. Mm-hmm. But we also teach um, climate smart agriculture uh, practices to make sure that the soil remains healthy um, and that um, you that there's a, a beneficial relationship between the commercial farming um, uh, climate mm. um, that, that you're climate positive, etc. Um, in your practices. Um, but you're also making money so there's a lot of esg reporting involved mm-hmm. in terms of how do we engage the farmers how do we work with them but how do we how are we positive in the environment but we don't even just stop at the garden we also have looked at how we process and you know you can't process without energy um when we first started we were using a lot of firewood to provide heat because umeme hadn't reached us yet but then mm-hmm. we realized we needed a source of power so we moved to solar energy mm-hmm. so um slowly slowly we're eliminating fossil fuels from the, our production line and um, to be a lot a lot more cleaner i think right now um, we're about 70 percent um, solar energy and about 30 percent um, uh, grid power okay. um, and we've eliminated we've eliminated the use of um, um, firewood um, you know, because we see the destruction that it does, and you know, and the way you can't plant enough trees fast enough to for the n- amount yeah. of firewood we needed to use to actually process our products. So we had to think a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. We can't be both climate activist businesses, mm-hmm. but also are contributing to the demise of the climate as uh, at the same time. So we kind of had to change our model. Yeah, how have the farmers received this? Is this something that? is embraced is there a lot of education that needs to be done because i don't know the perception maybe is that here especially in in rural parts of the country um people are not as aware of the effects of some of these things so what has your experience been in terms of like sensitizing farmers and what has the reception been yeah they you know you know farmers um in the rural economy are the you know the ones first affected by climate change it used mm. to be like you know my mother could predict exactly mm. the day to the day when yeah. the rains are going to come back yeah right now no. we can't yeah. even if the rains start you know on the day where you know within the week that where it started where the, you know traditionally they would start preparing their their gardens to actually plant and then suddenly they're gone for two weeks mm. so you know all, you know everything is up in the air so there needs to be more um climate sensitization to the effects of deforestation but how do you do that when farmers don't have any other option except to engage in you know destructive activities mm-hmm. that provide them an income like for yeah. example most of masindi has now been re- you know um, raised for sugarcane mm-hmm. 
uh, to plant um, for Kenyara sugar works, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, farmers don't have any other options but to literally cut down every tree so that you know you, they can monocrop for sugarcane because you know that's a commercial product that they can definitely rely on for income within within two years, etc. But the the net impact on the environment is extreme, mm-hmm. um, and yes, fine sugar. You know, plant sugarcane. You're engaging. You're making money, etc. But there's also, you know, the destructive activities that are not being trained out of them. Like once the fields are harvested, they burn down the rest of the field, which is really destructive, both to the soil as also to the environment. So instead of like, why are we not sensitive? Why is Kenyara Sugar Works not sensitizing them to the fact that hey, if you leave that residue on the field? It turns into mulch. It turns into, uh, you know, food for the soil. So that your harvest in the next, um, in the next season is much higher and much better. But instead, they pile it all up, burn it down because mm-hmm. it's easier, mm-hmm. right? It's easier and it's cheaper in terms of maintaining that field. Mm-hmm. But we need a lot more sensitization on the, on those kinds of activities and how we can be more climate smart agriculture. But also as a country, we have this balance where we need to. We need to see economic growth mm-hmm. and balance that against mm-hmm. um, climate destruction. Because the, you know, by destroying the climate, just because for short-term gains, we're going to lose long term over you know over mm-hmm. long term. But we have this short-termism because we need to survive, mm-hmm. um, and that's difficult uh, to balance when someone is starving, and then here you are teaching them about long-term climate change. Yeah. You know, climate smart agriculture practices. They're going to look at you and say, <laughs> "But I need to eat today." <laughs> yeah. Right. What, you know, how am I going to actually eat today? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of effort that needs to go into that, considering about, you know, over 70% of our economy is powered by agriculture, um, or, or should I say our workforce is engaged in, in, in agriculture. So they have um, an, an outsized impact um, on the environment, um, just not, not out of greed or anything else, but just purely out of survival. Um, one of the things that I'm actually noticing in the village is that um, people are running out of firewood. There's not enough trees, mm. but the population is continuing to, you know, okay. to increase. Right? They no longer have firewood. They can't access, um, you know, trees for charcoal, for example. So it's getting worse and worse and worse, and we're losing. Um, critical species to the economy that we're talking about. Mm. Like, for example, in northern Uganda, we're losing share, t- share trees mm. because they're being cut down for um, economic gain mm. as opposed to the long-term economic gain of harvesting the, the, the seeds for shea butter. Mm. Um, so we need interventions there to provide alternatives um, to shrinking resources mm. um, that are critical to our future. Yeah. So when we at Rain Tree Farms are engaging with the farmers, we kind of think of it in long, we do the long-term planning, mm-hmm. but with short-term solutions to uh, their need mm-hmm. to survive. Yeah. So because for us as a company, we have to look at our future, mm-hmm. but also at, you know, the future of the farmers, mm-hmm. their health, um, their financial viability and stability is critically important to our survival because if they're unable to make it at farming, we are not going to have raw materials for our company yeah. because we're not built where, you know, we we're, we're going to go to URA, you know, UIA and actually say, hey, I need a thousand square miles yeah. and we're going to farm that without engaging with the community. To us, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. We want to work with the community. 
So as we do that, it is absolutely imperative Mm -hmm. that we're thinking about that engagement from a climate positive perspective. Yeah, um, that's that's uh, that's really great and 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 good. A lot of intervention needed, as you said. Yeah, and and speaking of intervention, I wanted us to speak a bit about the the ecosystem, the entrepreneurial ecosystem in in general. I know you've been involved in different ecosystem building efforts, even here at UEI, and and we appreciate you for that. Could you share with our listeners some of your observations on the state of the entrepreneurial ecosystem? What gaps? particularly um, exist, which ones stand out to you and, and what do you think needs to be done to close them? Yeah, they, there's a lot of work um, for us to do to build um, the ecosystem. Um, but one, one thing I think we need to be very um, sensitive to is the country's demographic. I think when we're planning these interventions and things like that, we need to look at where we're putting our efforts and how... Um, we're because a lot of the interventions that we're doing needs to be geared about hey we're planning for a long-term future not just an intervention for right now mm-hmm. because that needs to affect exactly how do we transition to so that it's more sustainable all of our interventions are a lot more sustainable so first you have to think about the demographic of the country 78 percent of this country is under 30 yeah 50% of it is under 15 so where does that tell you the interventions need to go in our education curriculum. Mm. We have to overhaul our education system if we want people and entrepreneurs who are ready to be investable, et cetera. Mm. So a lot of the people that investors are going to engage with in the startup economy, the entrepreneur economy are very young. They're getting their first customer ever. They're writing their first ever business plan. They're, you know, they're <coughs> designing their first product. Um, etc we need to think about it from that perspective is like we have a lot of energy and a lot of youth but not Mm -hmm. a lot of experience Mm -hmm. so a lot of bds um, business development services are needed and to engage at an early stage in Mm -hmm. fact we need multiple levels of bds support um, to grow these entrepreneurial businesses etc because the intervention you're going to have for first-time entrepreneur are going to be different from someone that has been there five years versus someone that has been there 10 years etc and that kind of stuff so and that intervention needs to be in such a way that it prepares them for a future because that BDS support helps everybody across the board so if investors are coming you have a much more prepared um, talent pool Mm -hmm. to invest in in ideas because they're organized and they know exactly what it means to be an entrepreneur we have this thing um, in Uganda where we celebrate being the most entrepreneurial country in the world I violently disagree with that Mm. because we're not entrepreneurs we're hustlers yeah because there is no No other other choice there's no other option yeah you can't tell me we're the most entrepreneurial country in the world but yet we have heavy underemployment Mm. heavy underemployment because you're not going to call somebody selling a tomato on the corner Mm. an entrepreneur He's just trying to survive. He's just trying to survive. Yeah. Right? When you're in traffic, you are you going to call all those people knocking on your window to sell you, you know, steering wheel covers and, and you know, bun? Everything. Every, from food to yeah. steering wheel to <laughs> toilet paper. The super, you can the, get it all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the supermarket <laughs> comes to you, right? Yeah. You, you know, by the time you reach the, the supermarket that, that you were going to, you yeah. could have bought everything on the road. Yeah. All of those are hustlers are trying to make their way home. 
you know, they're trying to bring food to the table, to the house. I can't call those guys entrepreneurs because, you know, say I was an investor. Can I go to that person and actually get the, um, the due diligence done to be able to invest in that guy's idea, whatever yeah. he's selling? Can I do that? No, you can't. You have to take that guy off the street, put him in, in a program where you can prepare him for investment, first of all, so that he understands exactly what does investment mean. Yeah. All right. Taking on another person's money. Yes, we call that capital. But do you know the responsibilities? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That come along with that capital mm. to actually build. Yeah. Are you building for long term, or are you going to abandon the idea tomorrow because it didn't work out today? Because mm. you are a hustler. Your mentality is hustle. Mm. Right. You will stay with something so long as it continues to make money for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So as long as it continues to be and it doesn't have to be billions of, of, of shillings. Mm -hmm. Right. For you, you're concerned about today. paying your bills. Yes. Yeah. You're concerned about today. Does this thing pay my bills? Mm -hmm. If it doesn't or if it goes through a period where it's struggling, you're going to abandon that as quickly as possible. Move on to something else that might make you money. Yeah. So when we look at that, I can only I can only understand from an investor's perspective how it's going to be very frustrating investing in. Um, indigenous Ugandans. Mm -hmm. So, when also you look at the landscape, the you know in investment landscape, and the in the types of people who are getting investment, most of the money is going to foreigners who are coming in prepared, mm. right? They're coming from economies where entrepreneurship is an organized, um, experiential thing that you. By the time you get out of college, you know you know all of these details. Mm. You know exactly how to get it done. There's a reason why half, you know, ninety percent of these startups that are funded in Nairobi are run by MIT grads, mm. etc. Right? Foreigners that are yeah. taking advantage of local opportunities that are here, and that the foreign money is going to follow them mm. because they have the experience, they understand how the investor speaks, they understand, you know. Um, the procedures and processes and what they need to do and the due diligence that needs to happen to appease the investors. For us, we don't. Yeah. You know? And this is right from the education uh, system. Yeah. yeah. Do you understand what a balance sheet is? Just from a general perspective, do you understand what a balance sheet is? Right? Can you put that together? Can you give me projections? Right? When I ask you for that, what is your profit loss? Can you can we have that conversation? Yeah. Right. Um, so when investors are not able to actually have that conversation, or the work is too much, because remember, for them, they're trying to minimize their expenses as they're investing in you. They want a return on their money. Yeah. Right. They don't want to put, um, you, you know, they don't want to run a lot of overhead just to do capacity due building. Diligence. Yeah. For that startup, they love the idea, but there's no capacity within the company to actually build it to where they need to actually get it done. Yeah. So there, right there, even with people with um, um, with really amazing ideas, and they're in the somewhere in the zero to three year period where they're building that idea, that's where a lot of media support needs to happen. Mm. First, I think from a government perspective. I think anybody that registers an idea um, or a company with um, URSB, et cetera, needs mm. to partner with UIA and come together and actually say, do you understand mm. what it means to launch this company? Here are the basics we'll take you through that you're going to need to actually survive as a business. And then from there, when they have those you know, simple basics, we need to bring in uh, the Oxfams, the, mm. the uh, open capital advisors, et cetera, that mm. will actually take care of the next stage of um, media support and building, 
right? So that they can get them ready. And then after that is, you know, we begin now growing small startups into enterprises. Each one of those needs different kinds of interventions. Mm-hmm. You're not going to talk to a zero to three year old entrepreneur about board structure, mm-hmm. you know? You're going to introduce them to that because they're eventually going to need that several levels down the road before they're raising their first Series A cap, you know, um, where they need an actual board. They actually understand Mm. what what that means. Mm. What is, um, you know, what is, uh, you know, what does a chairman do, Mm. you know? Um, what is what is a n- non-executive director? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what? Are, or how does that structure function? How does the managing director fit into the board, etc.? Mm-hmm. Just that structure, etc. Yeah. Um, when you have a board, do you ignore them or do you listen to them? Do you are you do you hire your cousins <laughs> <laughs> on on the board because you don't want you know you want just to tick a box? Yeah, exactly. Know. Just just to tick a box. You know, is it fun- actual functional structure for your business and company? Um, so across the board, I think we need help. Um, and going back mostly is because we need to look at Uganda as a young emerging, emerging talent pool. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the young demographic, we need a lot of intervention mm-hmm. um, so that um, we are very realistic where we are. We, need to, we don't need to oversell yeah. um, you know, where we are. We need to be realistic about where we are. We're lacking a lot of skill you know, yeah. in the entrepreneurial structure. Yeah, and, and as you've said, um, with that lack of skill, there's multiple levels of BDS. So when you say that, it makes me think about specialization, which is something that we've been discussing um, in these different uh, co- uh, spaces at UEI and, and these learning labs. And what has really come out is that there's this perceived unaffordability of BDS by the entrepreneurs. So even the BDS organizations are struggling to survive. They are startups as well. And so they end up trying to or offering everything and anything to every and any entrepreneur, you know. So there's no specialization. Mm. And so we can't have that those levels, like you've said, where um, a specific need is being met at a particular time for the entrepreneur. So what are your thoughts on this? How do you think BDS sustainability can be improved and um, specializing of, B, of BDS and having multiple layers of BDS, like you said? Yeah, I mean, and and I think if if we're talking about actually BDS, um, this needs to be a structure where it's a multilateral engagement mm-hmm. with multiple players, um, and it, and it has to be from from multiple players because BDS is supported mostly by nonprofit. Uh, um, what should I say? What would I call it? Grant. Grant. Yeah, yeah. the grant scheming right uh, along the way. That mm-hmm. that's what paid for for those BDS. Um, service providers, mm. uh, for example. I think the bottleneck is, is how BDS is actually designed. Mm. Um, because I know, for example, for us, for our BDS, we were required to expense the money for those consultations mm. before we could actually get the BDS support back. Now, okay. if you're looking at a company that, you know, somewhere between zero to five years old, mm. they're still building that company. Revenue isn't where it needs to be. Consultants are not cheap. They're not cheap. So the structure and how the design is actually made um, is actually can can be um, disadvantageous to new startups. And they struggle, actually, even though you give them BDS support, the structure and 
um, regulation around how they deploy it um, is a bit difficult and inaccessible for most entrepreneurs um, in the country. Again, we, we go back to, you know, how much experience do these guys um, have mm. in actually engaging with these consultants, right? Because yeah. a lot of them, you know, are new to this area. They don't know, hey, I need a finance manager. Well, they don't even know what a finance manager does, mm. you know? But then, and then they're not making, <laughs> they're not making enough to actually afford a finance manager. That's why you have the BDS support there. But now you're telling them you need to pay for this, B, you know, for this finance manager before we can actually reimburse you for the money. So companies are going to struggle. So the structures need to be a little bit different. Does BDS um, support pay um, directly to um, the consultant that's been assigned to this company um, before they actually can? Do we structure the BDS in such a way where multiple companies can engage the same um, consultant, for example, mm. right? Are there BDS firms specifically for building companies? Like, can I go to a BDS firm, get my marketing manager consultant mm. and finance manager consultant, um, operations consultant, mm. et cetera, all of those things that are actually needed? Can we get that from the same entity? Um, what you said earlier was actually really funny because I, you know, we, we, we just applied to get additional, um, BDS support, multiple consultants, and we mm -hmm. put out a tender, okay. right? A public tender, mm -hmm. uh, for this. And we have four tenders that we published mm -hmm. and you get one firm that actually comes in and says, oh. send us the BD, you know, send us the tender details for all four of these. Right, yeah. and I'm like, but how? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's like, so I, I, so finance, you know, yeah, I, marketing, exactly, everything, exactly. yeah. Exactly. But how are you? How are you building support? Like, what do you specialize in? Mm. I would be weary to hire one company for everything that I need. I need specialization. So I think how BDS service providers are organized is also actually a bit problematic. We need to know that there are BDS providers specifically. Um, um, ex experienced in financial management, um, operations management, product research, support, etc. There needs to be structure within the BDS environment um, that I think the BDS um, grant supporters need that visibility. Yeah, you know that we need that visibility because sometimes when we need BDS supporters, they're not enough. They're not enough bids that are actually going. But then you put out a public tender, and then all of them come out of the woodwork. It's like, why does the BDS support structure not know about this and we have to go to an open tender for this, right? I should be able to go to KPMG, they look through their Rolodex and say, we have 15 people we can, we can send this tender to, yeah. you know, that are quality. Yeah, and um, so now what about the entrepreneurs that now are able to access the BDS, uh, they've grown to a certain level and are now looking for financing? Mm. Um, there's this question around investability and investment readiness where you find that entrepreneurs are either unwilling to seek um, equity, uh, equity investment or um, when they are, they don't know how to sell themselves or to sell their businesses in, in a way that is able to attract the investment. So that's where the whole, the whole um, investment readiness uh, problem comes in. What are your thoughts on this? And what steps do you think need to be made to align the expectations on, from investors with what BDS is currently offering? This goes back also again to sensitization in, in the, within the education system. Mm -hmm. By the time 
if you're even entrepreneurially minded, you should have the basics when you're coming out of Medicare or whatever university you're coming out of. You should understand like what it means to sell equity in your company. Yeah. You should understand what it means to take a convertible note um, or a safe agreement or just the basics, yeah. you know, especially if you're graduating out of business school. You should know these basics. You know, they should be there um, and fundamental to your um to your to your degree mm-hmm. that you understand the, the ecosystem and how that works we don't have that because it, mm-hmm. those concepts are very very new we're coming from a generation of businesses that have been around 20 30 years because they're family run mm-hmm. right but then the challenge if you look at that business ecosystem as soon as the founder dies mm-hmm. the business doesn't last yeah. even three years mm-hmm. right it begins to crumble under the weight of responsibilities for structures that were never built, mm. right? The founder literally handled everything, mm. right? Um, and didn't create structures for and didn't delegate. Everything went through that person. Mm. So when they're no longer there, the different the, the different um, sections of the, bu- of, of not, the yeah. business yeah. don't know how to coordinate. Um, and then, you know, and then they, you know, these wrangles, these, you know, there was never a board. So there's no decision making. Um, there's no structure of responsibility. So you can't invest in that. So transitioning that now to that kind of mentality, brick and mortar mentality that I call it, to um, business environments that are where you actually literally build your company to be investable from the ground up mm-hmm. is difficult when you have a, um, a generation of people who think that um, telling other people about your idea mm-hmm. will make them steal the idea, mm-hmm. right? So they don't build any structures. They keep everything close to the chest mm-hmm. or they don't invest in anything that can grow beyond what their imagination is, mm-hmm. right? They think selling equity um, in your business is actually, you know, these guys are going to take over my business, blah, blah, blah. They just want, they just want my business, et cetera. They, mm. They'll take over my idea, blah, 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 blah. Mm. When it's really about execution, mm. ideas are plenty. Mm. Execution is unique to you, right? When an investor comes, it's because they love the way you're executing this idea. Because anyone can come in and actually um, give their hand at building an idea. This is the very reason why we have multiple car companies. Yeah, it's a car, it's four wheels, <laughs> right? Yeah. And 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 a body and seats inside. Mm. You sit in it, mm. but we have multiple companies because they're different ways of executing. Yeah, right. There's a you know a Toyota Vitz is not the same as a Lamborghini, right? Yeah. It's not. So you have company. <laughs> by any, yeah, by any means, mm, right? a Tesla. Standards. Tesla is not exactly the same way as a Citroen, or you know however you, you want to look at it, it's because every one of those came to that industry with a specific idea of how they want to execute. And they built that company in such a way and actually be able to say, okay, I have startup money to actually build the first prototype. Mm-hmm. But then beyond that, I'm going to need to go out and sell the idea to people with money who are going to help us get to the next level. Mm-hmm. So... <clears throat> But those guys understand exactly how to structure that company in a way to actually for an investor to be able to come in and say, okay, this is how much money I've put into the company. This is how much we need to get to the next level. Here's our deck, right? Mm. Um, Most of these investors that we're talking about, these young entrepreneurs, don't know how to build a deck. That's your communication device to how to sell your company. If you can't put that together, what investor is going to come to you? 
right? So we, we're doing also a lot of that at Hive Collab is um, a lot of sprints with entrepreneurs to where we're actually ac accelerating them, teaching them these basic skills of how to sell and position your company to investors and customers. Yeah. Um, so that so that's absolutely um, critical to to the ecosystem and for investors also. Um, and I know for them, um, it's all about protecting their money. Mm. But there's no reward without risk. Mm. And risk um, involves also <laughs> staying away from predatory terms. Because I mm. think that's one of the things that mm. actually keeps um, entrepreneurs from not taking money. Mm. Um, is because the terms are so predatory. Right, you, investors come to you and say, "Hey, we'll invest in you." Blah blah blah. But when you look at the blueprint, mm -hmm. they will literally sneeze, and you have you you realize that you know <laughs> yeah. something funny happens, and then you suddenly you've lost the company yeah. um, because of the structure and the way that terms are written are mm -hmm. not pro entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Right? They've built in all of that risk to actually take over the company because they they've looked around and I say, you know, there's no um, structure or uh, guarantee that these entrepreneurs actually get going to get to the other side and make us money. So we need to build in these fail saves to take over. Mm. When if we, if we sniff that something is going to go wrong, mm. things go wrong all the time. Mm. It's entrepreneurship, right? You are going to run into situations that the entrepreneur didn't even consider. How many investors built into their survival? COVID nineteen. You get yeah right. Yeah. If investors no didn't, one. if investors didn't build in that risk for their investments, how do you expect entrepreneurs to know, yeah. right? To be ready for that, mm -hmm. um, to be able to communicate. So I think the, a lot of flexibility is needed mm -hmm. uh, in this ecosystem. It's not Silicon Valley where you go and meet an investor and he has several billion dollars and he's going to write a check just because you told him an idea on a napkin, mm -hmm. you know, over coffee. Mm -hmm. Here, the structure is, yeah, it's a great idea. Does this entrepreneur have the support mm -hmm. to build it? Because I know as, as an investor, you have an, a whole gang of you know, financiers mm -hmm. and number crunchers, etc. When an entre entrepreneur comes to you, they sit down in front of you and tell you about the idea. The people behind you who are crunching numbers are like, yeah, the market potential for this is massive. Mm -hmm. But this guy doesn't have mm -hmm. the support to actually build it. Mm -hmm. Right. So instead there, instead of focusing on just the idea and the market potential, we need to go back and restructure the investment and actually say, first of all, you need BDS support in these areas. Mm. And here's how the BDS is actually going to help you build, build out this idea so that you can be able to handle the kind of money that we're going to give you. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that it's more protected. Mm. So let's protect investor money mm. through skills building of the entrepreneurs to actually be able to say, okay, once we deploy this capital, we know that the BDS support program we sent him through will actually help to protect our money as yeah. investors. Yeah. So there's the impatience from the investor side, I think, is not enough. The impatience is leading to terms that are literally... Um, Predatory or just there not favoring go. the... Well, predatory is yeah, the word. Yeah. They're very, very predatory yeah. um, in, in taking advantage of inexperienced entrepreneurs. Yeah. Talented, but inexperienced entrepreneurs. So there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of sieving, and I guess there's a lot of support needed from BDS, like you said, to help um, like 
interpret that fine uh, fine print and and like see exactly like what is predatory and and what is not and what is fair uh, to the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you touched on you talked a bit about um, competitiveness and this culture that we have of keeping our ideas to ourselves and and this fear that an idea will be stolen um, and maybe because in fact people have seen this happen in in the marketplace and yet we also know that especially in an ecosystem like ours where a lot of support is needed there's a lot to be gained from collaboration and partnership and working together how do you think that um, this can be addressed what are your thoughts on this and how do you think we can start to see more collaboration and partnership um, amongst entrepreneurs mm. and even the organizations that support the entrepreneurs? Well, I mean, uh, we we also go back again to BDS support um, in working with us with these entrepreneurs to create an ecosystem around them um, where we can have events and ideas for brainstorming from an industry perspective. Um, because one of the things I think we need to look at is like we don't exist alone. Like for example, for us at Raintree Farms, we know we're not the only um, Moringa growing entity in the country. But we do keenly understand that in order for um, for Uganda to be known as the destination for the best Moringa in the world, um, we need to work together to make to make sure that the standards that each of our companies operate on are of high quality. Because if a company in Kasese, for example, is processing Moringa and it's terrible and they're exporting it to Europe, Europe is going to blacklist Uganda. Uganda Even yeah. though Raintree Farms mm-hmm. is producing amazing Moringa. Yeah. Right, they're going to blacklist us because they, you know I think you know the, the the general perspective is like we produce terrible moringa, but their experience was with one company. Or there's going to be um, there's going to be uh, fear that you know uh, we don't want to engage with another company from Uganda because our last experience with this company was was terrible. Mm. So you can eliminate a lot of that by holding each other accountable. You can only hold each other accountable if you're willing to sit across the table from each other as competitors and collaborators. Right? Yeah. So, for example, for us in, in our range farm, sometimes we get orders where we can't mm. fulfill the customer's orders because our supply chain isn't big enough. So we call up somebody like, you know, Priceless Farms and actually say, hey, do you have some extra Moringa that yeah. we can actually use because we have a customer we need to actually deal with. Priceless Farms makes money. Mm. Raintree Farms makes money. Uganda makes money. Right, yeah. you can only do that by by engaging with each other. Or, for example, and your customer is satisfied, and yes, you won't lose that customer. Exactly, and they will continue come. Mm-hmm. And the reason we go to Priceless Farms is because we say, okay, the, we've been working with these guys and building together with these guys over the last five years. We understand what quality means, exactly. right? Yeah. We have a, a, we are extremely disciplined in making sure that we know the ins and outs of this product and what we produce. We can rely on that on that quality. Mm-hmm. So that collaboration helps your industry for both of you to survive. Like some mm-hmm. priceless farms will come to us and actually say, "Hey, we're unable to, to meet this order. Can you talk to them? Mm-hmm. Right? Can you talk to this customer and you fulfill their order? Mm-hmm. Because they know the next time that happens to me, I'm actually going to engage with them. Yeah. But overall, Uganda wins. Yeah. Right? The ecosystem grows. Um, the customers who are looking at Uganda grow, 
Um, and, and we slowly change the perception of what's possible out of Uganda. Mm. It's like it's possible to actually build high quality out yeah. of Uganda. But you can do this across um, multiple, um, you can do this across multiple industries in the, within the country where there's um, collaboration where it's needed. Like, for example, when it comes to just even just policy, Right. When it comes to poli- like, for example, in the tech sector, um, the ICTAU, ICT Association of Uganda, it lobbies the government on behalf of the tech ecosystem. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. That's different companies, um, tech entrepreneurs, developers, etc., who are in one organization and say, hey, let's put this together so that we can lobby and engage government in dialogue on tech policy that helps us as opposed to hurt us, mm. you get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whenever there's policy being tabled, we have a representative that actually goes, you know, and engages with government and says, you know, our ideas from our collective industry are that we can improve this on this and this. Mm. So, like, for example, a couple of years ago, we really engaged um, near, uh, NITA um, mm. and the government on policy about accreditation of um tech workers and developers within the country. We benchmarked against other countries, et cetera, and we came together and actually, you know, we helped guide that policy so that there's a win-win. Government gets what it wants, our tech sector gets protected, and we continue to move forward and have dialogue. There's no way we could have done that together if we're competing and you know divided and separate mm-hmm. where we you know don't have a unified voice to actually protect our own industry because a lot of people get into a business and an industry and say i want to be the only one mm-hmm. i want to be the monopoly i don't want to give business to my competitor etc mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. your competitor is always going to be there whatever your idea is people competition will come mm-hmm. competition is actually good for you yeah. that's what we need to actually understand competition is good for you competitors are good for you mm-hmm. They push you, yeah, right. And the more of them that they are there, the more the bigger, the, you know, a slice of the pie gets. So instead of wanting to eat the entire pie, the entire is, small pie, <laughs> the entire small pie, <laughs> when you grow that pie with more collaboration, more, um, you know, players within that ecosystem, your slice of the pie is actually larger, yeah. right? If you can think of a, you know, of an industry, you know, hypothetically, it's the size of a five hundred shilling coin, mm. right? Um, that's a small industry. Mm. You are here trying to own that entire pie. Mm. When someone else is in another industry and the pie is the size of a table, mm. you know he's slight. He has a tiny slice of that pie, but Which it's massive compared to your one hundred percent. And it continues to grow. And it continues as to grow. more. Yeah, because come in. because yeah. people within that industry are protecting the industry. Mm. They're not protecting their company necessarily, right? Against other competitors, they're protecting that pie. Yeah. They're making sure this pie needs to continue growing and existing. And the only way we can actually do that is negotiate with the people that make it possible for this pie to exist. Yeah. Right. So we have to make sure that the money continues to come in whenever policy comes in that might be uh, detrimental to the growth of this industry. We need to march immediately to government and, and with our policy representatives and actually lobby and actually say, hey, Here's how you've implemented it, but here's a better win-win. You get what you want, we get to protect our industry. You can only do that if you guys work together. Yeah. 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 And I love the the, the success stories you have shared, even with Raintree Farms, of how this actually works and this actually helps. So speaking of success, as we conclude or as we, we 
yeah, as we conclude, what does success mean to Rain Tree Farms? How do you define success as a company? And where do you see yourselves in the next five years? What does the future look like? Well, this is a great and open question, actually, <laughs> in terms of also actually the timings, because um, when you're a competitive person like myself, um, success is ever evolving. Because as I, the minute you, at least for me, the minute I achieve a target that I wanted, I immediately, you know, there's already another one that's okay. already been set. So for us, I think we're always constantly going to be pushing ourselves um, in terms of um, um, redefining what success means, not to rest on our laurels. Oh, hey, we set a target five years ago, we have achieved it, now we're successful. No. Success to me is always staying hungry. Right, always staying hungry because there's another level of a success that you can always achieve. It's all about execution. Um, however, you, when you execute, you know, to your first goal, for example, you redouble your efforts for the next target, and you redouble your efforts for the next target, etc. That's what keeps me going. Is we get to redefine an industry, establish and redefine and what's possible in an industry. So. We have a target that by 2025, we want to be the biggest exporter of Moringa products, period, um, out of the country, and thereby establishing Uganda as a destination for high-quality Moringa. I don't know if you're a wine drinker. Um, a but little. A little. Um, <laughs> that means a lot in Ugandan terms. <laughs> um, you, I, have you ever been to South Africa to visit the wine, wine country? Not to know. I haven't been to the wine country. If you go to South Africa and Stellenbosch, and, and this encompasses literally everything that we've been talking about. If you go to Stellenbosch, that's the wine producing re region, or go to France or Spain and go visit any of their wine, wine establishments. They have these amazing uh, plantations specifically focused on wine, each one specializing on, on different, on, on, um, um, on different speciality of wine. However, all of them as an industry work together to push um, to push the wine, the, the, yeah, the standing of Afri South African, African wine, wine, right? Okay. South African wine. Yeah, internationally, right? Yeah. So that all of them benefit. When you hear about South African wine, you can literally pick any bottle, mm. any vintage. Yeah. Any, any, the same any, goes for yeah. fr French wine yes, or Italian yes. wine. That's yes. actually what you think of, not necessarily the brand. particular brand. Yeah. yeah. You don't think about the yeah. brand. You think about the source of you know the country. So you know when we think about wine, we think about wine regions, right? We think yes. about Stellenbosch. We think about Bordeaux. Bordeaux, we, we yeah. We think about um, you know Spanish, the, the, the Spanish wines. Mm. We you know we're, uh, um, even the South Africa, the mm. South South American um, you know wineries, etc. Um, so that's how you collaborate and build each other. Now imagine if we did that for Moringa in Uganda, mm. right? Mm. Like to be able to say someone in the world says the world Moringa and then immediately yeah, you, think, you about, think of good quality ah, Moringa. You think of you that yeah. good quality Moringa we can get that from, um, from Uganda. We're already doing that. For example, with Nilotica Nilo Shea Butter, mm. right? You can only get that in, in uh, South... Um, um, South Sudan and, mm, and, and Northern Uganda, and Northern Uganda yeah. right? Nalorka butter is because of the problems um, in you know establishing a stable market in South Sudan. Majority of it is gotten out of Northern Uganda. Mm. Nalorka butter has a global brand, mm. right? It has a global brand, and it's already established itself as better than the um, than the shea butter that comes out of West Africa. Mm. 
right? And because it's much easier to spread, etc. Blah, blah blah blah. To us, and, and this is a long-winded way of <laughs> of answering the question. Um, no, but it makes complete sense. Yeah. yeah. So for us, we're looking to establish ourselves um, and the region as a high-quality producer of moringa. We want to s establish a center of excellence in the country. Um, where other companies can actually come and learn to how to be a high-quality producer of this product, yeah. right? So we don't want to keep it too much to our shelves, to our, to ourselves. When because when we started, there wasn't that many companies who were producing, so we had to make every mistake on our own. So in our philosophy, you know, as we grow our Moringa Academy, is to actually be able to say, look, we've made every mistake there is. Let us help you not make those mistakes mm. because we want you to be successful. The very same way Stellenbosch is established by mul multiple companies that are producing wine, <coughs> we want multiple companies producing high-quality Moringa in the country. And if that takes us sharing our secrets, sharing our methodologies, etc., that's fine because we know you're going to try to, to execute a little bit differently. Yeah, right? and we all benefit. Yeah, and yeah. Then, but we all benefit. Mm. So, yeah, so success to us looks like an industry. Um, that is established and globally known um, right here in Uganda. Because, I, because I, I, I think the crop really can help a lot, yeah. especially if you're focused on delivering impact at the last mile, mm -hmm. making sure farmers are making really good money, mm -hmm. um, and then the country benefits. And one of the reasons I want to do that is because, um, and we haven't shared this stat in this conversation, mm -hmm. we, well, we shared a little bit of it, um, over 70% of our workforce is in agriculture, mm -hmm. but we only pull out about 20, 22% mm. are represented in GDP. Mm. That means we're underperforming mm. severely. Yeah. Right? So farmers need to make more money. Um, we need to make more products as companies. Um, and need, we, we need to export more to actually build that. And we can only do that by sharing our knowledge with each other. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what final advice would you give to your fellow entrepreneurs who are looking at creating or growing a business that is long-term, that's sustainable, that's impactful? What would be your final thoughts? <laughs> One of the things, um, as Ugandans, we don't do very well, and that's uh, long-term. Mm. Um, we don't do long-term very well. Um, we, quit, we quit very easily because, again, we're hustlers. Mm. We're looking for immediate gratification, immediate success, etc. Yeah, we have kids coming out of college, and then they're like their first thing that they want to <laughs> that they want to actually have is a car, right? Yeah. That 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 pull to be immediately to to be perceived as immediately successful mm -hmm. is detrimental to uh, to the growth of a lot of people. Yeah. What are you doing driving a, a, um, a depreciating asset mm -hmm. when you don't even have your first job, right? Mm -hmm. You don't even have your house, mm -hmm. right? You don't have a piece of land, but you're driving a car, mm -hmm. right? That, that to me just literally is like you didn't learn anything in school. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, I, some I, will argue that our public transportation is so poorly organized and a, a car then becomes a necessity. Well, okay, so let's put, it that, let's put that in perspective. It takes you three hours to get across town in your car. Mm -hmm. How is adding more cars on the road going to help that situation be better organized? But then what's the alternative? A Boda Boda is much faster. Here's the thing, though, about Boda Bodas. They're the most convenient way of conveyance across the city. You're going to get in car accidents. You're going to, how many bus accidents do we have? How many taxi accidents do we have? Mm. They're there. 
I think accidents in any any form of conveyance happens. Plane rides, mm. planes crash, mm. trains crash. Mm. If it, it's just a reality, what we need to get rid of is this pers- is this pursuit of perception. Perception isn't success, yeah. right? Perception isn't success. Me when I'm in town. I love taking a border cross. In fact, I have a designated border border to get me across town, yeah. right? Because I know my time is more valuable than perce- than being perceived as successful. Mm. I'm not going to sit in a car for two hours just to drive 15 minutes because I want to be perceived as successful. Mm. I need to drive. I don't care. Mm. I don't care. Yeah. I know what's in my bank account. Um, I <laughs> I know I know how the business is performing, and I know the future that I'm building for. Right, sitting in a car, wasting two hours waiting to get to the, my next meeting, which ended an hour ago, mm-hmm. is not to me the best use of my time. is is not keeping me focused on the vision that I want to build. Yeah. If you're going to plan for long term success, delayed gratification is the lesson you need to learn. You can't have immediate success and also build for long term. You have to sacrifice one thing. Right. We're not good. We talked about earlier about companies that fail immediately when the founder dies. Mm. I'm not interested in doing that. I'm interested in building beyond my lifetime. Mm. I'm interested in a legacy company that can outlast me. That means building structures. And if building structures requires me to build this company and delay my gratification for as long as possible so that those structures can actually be properly invested in, then I will do that. Mm. I want to build generational wealth, not just, you know, short-term wealth, Mm. you know. That's success to me, going back to your question. (laughs) That is success to me if I can build... Um, you know, a company that far outlasts me and my kids and their kids, etc., can be tied to that. We need more generational companies here. Um, we need to stop killing them as soon as the founder dies. Mm. We need to emphasize those structures to, um, that actually allow for multiple CEOs to come in. I want an Apple computer company mm. out of Uganda. Yeah, you know, two hundred years from now, we all know Steve Jobs, right? Yes, you know, he built yeah. Apple, etc. He died, mm. and and we are still and Apple has done ten times more business since his death, mm. right? It continues to grow because he spent his time building structures into that company. That company is going to be around so long as the execution and philosophy that he left are going to be there. That company is going to continue outperforming. We need more of that out of that. We can only do that if we learn how to think big, how to think long Long term, term. and how to delay gratification. I will leave you with, you know, this term that probably everybody knows. Do not be afraid to plant a tree under whose shade you will never sit. Mm. Yeah. Build this company, yes, hustle for your life, even though you will never, you know, you will never buy it yourself. Um, see the fruits or sit under the shade so to speak right yeah yeah Yeah. so don't build a company because you want to be seen in a benzy tomorrow right immediately you buy that benzy it's you know it's worth less than you know when it rolled off you know the lot exactly that is definitely a message for this generation that's on social media constantly and like you said perception ends up becoming prioritized thank you so much teddy thank you for those insights that you've shared uh, throughout this conversation and that advice 
Um, it's been a great discussion and a pleasure having you on. All the best with the. We'll be looking out, and we also look forward to seeing moringa, the moringa industry being elevated in Uganda. All the best, and thank you from ground up. Thank you for the invitation and the conversation. It was an excellent hour. Tune in to Ground Up every Monday. Subscribe and share this content if you find it useful. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.